morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalm 95, Psalm 95, that's about in the middle of your Bible. And if you don't have one, there are some black Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those to follow along with us, and we'll be on page 499 in the black Bibles, page 499, Psalm 95. We have been following this Advent series, and what Advent means is the arrival of an important person or event. And so what we're declaring this time of year is there's a world out there celebrating Christmas, um, sometimes not from a Jesus-centered perspective. We want to refocus our hearts and say, Jesus is what all of this is about, and he was the most important person that ever arrived on the scene. Uh, And so that's what Advent means. That's what we're celebrating as we focus on these different themes on the wall behind me each week. We're kind of trying to say, okay, this is really what the gift of Christmas, the gift specifically of Jesus, brings into our life. So we looked at hope, love, today, joy. Next week, a mentor of mine will be talking to us about peace and how Jesus brings peace into our life. Uh, And so we'll be looking at joy from Psalm 95. And I want to just think about the joy that the wise men expressed when they brought their gifts to Jesus. I don't know if you remember this story. It's in Matthew 2, but we're told that there were these wise men that came from the east. They're often called the Magi, which is the Greek word for these Babylonian, basically astronomers. A lot of people think maybe they had been trained uh, years and years before that in their school by Daniel, the character in the Bible who was a spiritual leader there in Babylon for a while when God had put his people in exile. So we're not sure of all the details, but somehow there are these people looking for a Messiah to be born. And it says in in Matthew 2, verse 10, when they saw the star, the star that signaled the location of Jesus' birth, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So I just want to kind of give you that picture. That is a model of what joy is. They they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're a model for us. And then what followed was they gave treasures and they worshipped Jesus. Jesus. They gave the gold and frankincense and myrrh. You've probably heard the story before. They gave these fine treasures and they worshiped Jesus. And so that's, I think, what we're being called to as well, to say Jesus is ultimately where we find true treasure in this world. And so therefore, he brings us joy. C.S. Lewis puts that together, this kind of how, how praise and worship meets joy, how those things operate together. And C.S. Lewis puts this together in his book on the Psalms. And C.S. Lewis says it this way, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I'll say that one more time. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So when you praise something, you are enjoying it, right? If you have a new car that you are excited about, you will tell people, I love my new car. That is praise because you're finding joy in that car, right? If you have a restaurant that you love, I love to tell people about restaurants that I love. I'm like, man, the salsa is so good, right? I'm praising the salsa because it brings me joy. And actually praising it brings me like secondary joy as well. There's more joy in the praising of it as well as the original beginning enjoyment of it. Does that make sense? So as we gather as God's people to praise God for his goodness, we are enjoying him. We're enjoying him vocally, mentally, emotionally. I want to add to this that that God in his vast wisdom gave me one of those kinds of weeks where I have not felt joyful much at all this week. Do you ever have weeks like that or is it just me? 
probably just me. I'm a very unspiritual bad person. But I had one of those weeks, and I thought, okay, God, you're, you're trying to teach me. How do you teach joy? This is a command, right? Be joyful. Rejoice. Well, sometimes we don't feel like it, right? Sometimes it's, it's not there. So how, how do we do that? Um, so I think Psalm 95 is a good text, as good as any, for us to say, okay, this is what it looks like to be called to rejoice, to be called to joy. So let's read together Psalm 95. Psalm 95 starts off, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me pray and ask that God would teach us. What does this look like? To be called to joy, and I think ultimately where this ends is, is to be called to true rest as we delight in God. So let me pray. God, we pray that you would help us. We admit fully, we, we struggle with this. This is hard for us to be joyful. How do, you, how do you create joy in your own heart? We ask that you would create joy for us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us and teach us this morning. We pray that your spirit would meet us here in a, in a world of brokenness and pain and cold weather that, frankly, some of us are not used to. Um, pray for your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As, as we look at this call to joy, this invitation to joy, Psalm 95 is, is a classic what is called call to worship. Have you ever heard that phrase before? A call to worship is what churchy people talk about when they're saying, there's kind of words you say at the very beginning when basically you're inviting the people of God to come into God's presence and praise him and say, God, you're good. And so Chris does this every week when he reads scripture and he says, we want to worship God because he's good and he's revealed himself to us in Jesus. And so Chris is doing that through these other words of scripture. And this word here in Psalm 95 is one of the most commonly used words that that ministers of the gospel, leaders of churches, leaders of house churches all over the world will, will use. They'll speak these words and say, come praise God. They're inviting us to come praise God, to enjoy him. And so what's really interesting is that these first few words tell us that joy is something noisy. Joy is making noise, and I want us to not miss that. Now, for some of you, this is so obvious, it doesn't even need to be said. But speaking from the background that I come from, what you might call like a, a Protestant Anglo background, my culture prides itself on not being noisy, okay? And so we have a lot to learn in this area. So if, if you don't need to learn this, great, just listen to what Scripture says and, and, you know, just soak it up. But for a lot of us, we need to learn this because we, we forget to connect those dots. We, we believe the lie that joy is something deep, deep, deep down that's hidden and no one can see it, Right? And we've been taught that in Sunday school. Happiness is smiling, but joy, it's frowning, but having it deep down, right? Well, that is, that's not actually what joy means, right? Joy is actually making noise. And so let's, let's look at this. First, first point, joy is making 
noise. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. There's this concept called parallelism, and Hebrew poetry has parallelism, which means in Hebrew, instead of rhyming sounds, they would rhyme ideas, which is really cool because it makes Hebrew the most translatable poetry of any culture in the world. Don't you think that's interesting? It's almost like God did that on purpose, right? And so what the Hebrew authors and the Psalms and in Proverbs and these other places that are poetic, they will rhyme ideas. And so they'll repeat ideas, repeat ideas, and stack them up. And so then you can come back and look at them and go, oh, these are all basically the same thing. So he's going to repeat making a joyful noise, shouting, singing, rejoicing. He's going to repeat all these concepts, and he's saying these are the same thing. So verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So we'll talk more about that connection of his kingship, his being the great God is really the driving force for this. But we're going to start here like the text does with, with the command, the command to make noise, to be rowdy, if you will. We're commanded to cheer and shout. Um, one of these words, the joyful, the noise word is uh, literally translated, and you might see this in your other translations if you have a different, like uh, New Living or NIV, it, it's literally like a war cry. God is calling you to come into his presence with a war cry, shouting that he's great and he's awesome and he's big and he's more powerful than anybody else. And so that's one of our commands. Uh, one of the great uh, Christmas movies of our time Elf uh, kind of just puts this into soundbite form. Why, why are you laughing? Um, this, this is put into kind of a soundbite for us. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. You know that's bad grammar, right? But it's memorable. Singing, it should be loud though, right? Singing loud, yeah. The best way to <laughs> spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear, right? So this is kind of a Christian concept. I wouldn't say the movie's necessarily a Christian movie, but that concept right there is a Christian concept, that, that we actually spread the cheer, the joy that we have in Jesus by making noise, by loudly saying God is good. Now, for some of you, when we gather as God's people to say God is good, it's more like music, and I would enjoy sitting next to you, and it would be beautiful, right? And I might want to record you, and we could maybe even sell it, because it's, it's beautiful. God has gifted you in that way. For others of you, it may be a little more painful. It may be a little more of the war cry, right? You're just shouting. But, but I want to encourage you that this is not a command that's limited to those with musical gifts. We are commanded to make a joyful noise. Those of you that are good singers, man, bring the beauty, right? Those of you that are not, make noise. It's okay. We'll just, we're going to fill the room with noise. We're going to shout and proclaim that God is good. It is a command. It is a command. And this is interesting because it's the flip side of something we saw really strongly when we were studying the Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see that the Psalms are filled with lament, which is basically crying about how bad your life is, and they're filled with praise. And so what we learned when we studied the Psalms for a year is that God calls you to be emotionally honest, right? God calls you to not hide or pretend that life stinks and you're having a bad day. You can bring all that to God in your worship and in your prayer and in your relationship with him and with other Christian believers. So churches that, that say, no, you have to smile all the time and pretend everything's okay, that's really not healthy spirituality. We, we are called to be emotionally honest with God, to say, God, I 
understand. Where are you? How long, O oh Lord, will you leave me? What? That's the kind of language we see in the psalm. So, so I want to encourage that. Be emotionally honest with God. But we can then take that so far that we never lead our emotions to praise and joy when we're not feeling it. So as I was talking, this week was one of those weeks where I was not feeling it, right? I was like, man, Lord, one more thing, you know, and I was lamenting to the Lord. But I also recognize that part of the spiritual rhythm of our life is what we call corporate worship, where we gather together as the people of God and we say, we're going we're to praise God. We're going to make noise. We're going to get rowdy and say that God is big, that God is awesome, that God is king, that all these other things may be going wrong, but, but I know God is still on the throne. And so joy is an externalizing of these truths and these feelings. Sometimes you don't feel it, but you believe it's true, so you say it out loud. Sometimes you struggle to understand the truths and understand what they all mean, but you feel them, and you can shout them out loud. Those things aren't always hinged together in our lives, but that's what we're trying to do, right? Discipleship is kind of trying to get our heart and our head together and kind of make, make that all clear through the scriptures, but we can approach them from both directions, and we're called to honestly lead our emotions. Say, I'm going, I'm going to shout that God is good, and that's going to help my heart get there, because I know it's true. So that's what we're called on to do. So if, if you're one of those people that, that just kind of stands and frowns during our worship service, I would say there's a couple options. Uh, one is you don't know Jesus. You don't know how awesome he is. And I just want to say, man, you're welcome here. So there should be plenty of people standing and frowning in our worship services because they don't know how great this king is. And we just want to invite you to come watch us and all this weird stuff we're doing and observe and allow us to plead with you that Jesus really is good, that he really is better than any other God you might be worshiping. And I would encourage you, if that's the category you are in, where you're like, this doesn't make sense to say that Jesus is awesome and sing these songs to him, I would say you might just kind of under your breath to yourself begin praising whatever it is that you think is going to bring you salvation. Just kind of begin being honest about it. Because a lot of times people in our culture are not honest about the reality that they're serving other gods, right? So if you think that education is going to save you, maybe, you're, you know, while we're singing to Jesus, you can be like, education, you're the greatest, you're going to fix my life, right? I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually being serious. Like, just begin externalizing what you believe in your heart. If you believe the next relationship is what's going to set things straight and you are pouring all your energy and all your time into making this relationship work, or the next one, or the next one, and thinking that's what's going to secure me in life. It might be healthy for you to externalize that and just say, I believe that relationships will save me, right? And just kind of start saying that out loud. And that'll, that'll help you to make spiritual progress, I think. Just being honest about what you think is going to save you. If you're, if you're kind of too cool and too intellectual for faith, you know, begin saying, hey, I'm smart and I can save myself, Right? Science is the answer. Whatever that, it, whatever your religion is, begin saying it out loud. Um, that's what we're called to do as Christians. And that actually leads our emotions. We believe something to be true. We believe that God has proved that even though this world is terrible, even though that I'm a sinner and I hurt people and other people have hurt me, that ultimately God is good because he sent Jesus to die for me. If I believe that to be true, I'm going to have to say that. And that's going to begin leading my emotions to be in line with that reality. So make noise to the Lord. Shout out to him. Um, another reason, maybe that you don't sing in church, maybe you are a believer, but you just don't you just don't like the songs we sing, right? Or maybe you're not musically gifted, like I was talking earlier. I was like, hey, you're still commanded to make a joyful noise. So just murmur, hum. Uh, we like to say in Texas, hoot and holler, right? Like just, just make noise 
declare that God is good. Just read the words. We put the, read, the, the words up there so you can read them. Read the words. Maybe you can't make musical sounds. Just make sounds, right? You're, you're declaring that God is good. It's not just beautiful music, but it's making a joyful noise that God is good, that God is great. C.S. Lewis talks about this in an interesting way in one of his books. He talks about the idea that there are really kind of two directions that we're coming from. One direction is there are really musically gifted people, and because you're worshiping with a congregation, uh, you have to somewhat temper your musical desires, right? So those of you that are really musically gifted, um, we might call you music snobs, right? You have to bring it down a notch and say, we're not going to do the perfect, ideal, heavenly music that I prefer, really it's your preferences, but that's another discussion. Um, we're not going to do that, right? We're gonna, I'm going to bring those down a little bit so that I can meet the congregation where they are. And then those of you that have no musical ability or no musical skills, you're kind of bringing it up a notch, right? You might not normally be into music, and we're inviting you into an, a, music, a musical event, right? Like we're saying, come on, you can be a part of the choir. You're not going to ruin it, right? We've got speakers. It's going to be loud enough that you're not going to ruin it, so make noise, and it's, it's all going to be okay. It's all, it's all going to work out in the end. W- when we think about this making noise together, one of the things that's really helpful is to see that it's a community event, right? He says specifically in verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Tim Keller makes a very helpful point that God is everywhere, right? So aren't we kind of always in his presence? But historically, God's people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, have this concept that even though God can be with you anywhere, right? See Psalm 139, you can't run away from him. There's a sense in which we are specially in his presence when we gather as the people of God to worship, to study God's word together, to sing together. There's a sense of that kind of special presence, right? It's not like he's more there and he's not really there the other times, but there's just this sense that we have of, I can receive grace. The, the illustration that he, he used, which I thought is really helpful, is sailors don't create wind, but sailors position themselves to like pick up the wind, right? So Jesus talks about his spirit as being the wind, right? It's a play on words. Spirit and wind in the Greek are the same word. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the the wind blows where it wants to. The spirit blows where it wants to, right? Our job is to be filled with the spirit, to respond to the spirit. And so as we gather as God's people, in a sense, it's like we're throwing out our sails and we're saying, okay, I'm coming into God's presence. I want to receive from him and I want to encourage the saints. So we have this uh, concept of coming into God's presence when we come together as God's people. And then it's clarified in the New Testament, I think. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, it says singing is not just about you, right? If singing was just about you, then worship services would be all of us listening to a listening device with headphones in, right? Because you would just pick your own favorite worship music. But it's not just about you. It is a group thing. And so it says in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that you are to sing to each other. Have y'all ever heard that before? Yeah? No? This is a non-responsive audience. Sorry. We'll work on this. Ephesians 5 says it this way. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with wine. That's going to get you into trouble. My translation. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And this is what that looks like. Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.19. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we come together and we submit 
to one another. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're encouraging each other. Have you all ever uh, heard that geese, when they're flying in formation, they honk at each other, you know? You got like the lead goose. When he gets tired, he goes to the back. But the other geese are like honking to encourage the geese. So again, if you're not musical, just think of it as spiritual honking, okay? Just like, yeah, Jesus is good. I don't get this song. The syncopation is weird, but we're just going to keep going, right? Just just sing and shout to the Lord. And you're, you're singing to each other is what Ephesians 5 says. It's repeated in Colossians 3. Almost perfect parallel. In verse 16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So in Ephesians 5, he says, you know, be filled with the spirit instead of being drunk. And in Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we can say those are parallels, right? Like being filled up with the Spirit is, is also being filled with the Word of Christ, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. And then he says, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Nice that he just settled the whole worship debate right there, right? He's like, sing all of them, okay? All those different kind of songs. Sing all of that stuff with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's saying that when we gather, we should be singing to each other, not just singing to Jesus. When you sing to Jesus, when you're saying, God, you're good, you're the great king, you're actually encouraging your brother and sister in Christ. So if you're not singing, I, I would say you're being disobedient. You need to start singing. And it's not just about you. It's not about your preferences, the perfect kind of music, right? We'll figure that out when we go to heaven. Then we'll know the right kind of music. Although I have indications from Scripture that all the nations will bring their treasures into the kingdom, right? So I have this picture that it's going to be a lot more diverse than you think when you get to heaven. And you will be fixed so that you actually enjoy it. Because right now, you just like your music, right? But when we're in heaven, we're all going to enjoy it. So we need to start that now. We need to start enjoying that diversity, singing out to God, making noise to him. All right, that's enough about that. Next one. Joy is knowing your place. Joy is knowing your place. So joy is making noise. We purpose to make noise together, and that kind of fans the flame. That helps us to rejoice. Joy is also knowing your place, and this goes back to what I was saying about God being the great king. This is an indicator that that's the kind of pivot point here, three, four, and five. God's greatness drives our behavior in then six and seven. So three, four, and five is God is great. And then six and seven is, so kneel, worship, bow down, because God is great. So I'm summarizing this by saying joy is knowing your place. Know your place, that God is king and you're not king, right? So, so know your place. Verse three, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all other gods. So those other gods that you would serve, whether you call them gods or not, that's why the spiritual exercise of, of singing to your false gods might help you call them out, recognize who they are. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So in the ancient world, just like today, there are always competing gods. I would say the ancients were often more honest than we are about it. We say, I'm not worshiping other gods. I'm just giving all my time, energy, and hope to this thing. But it's not a god, right? And in the ancient world, they would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm worshiping the, the farm god or I'm worshiping the fertility god, or I'm worshiping the sea god, or, you know, whatever it would be. So we struggle to be as honest. So, so part of the process of discipleship is, is calling that out, being more honest about the false gods that we tend to want to worship. 
and then recognizing, oh, they're not, they're not the real God, right? The God that made everything, he's the real God. He's the God. He's the great king over all things. And as we recognize that, then it leads us further into worship, verse 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That was a great 80s scripture song. Do you all remember that one? That was a good one. I love that one. One of those I would sing to my children as a lullaby. Um, so what this looks like in my life, one of the rhythms that helps me to know my place is being out in nature. Um, so we see here this idea that the real God is the God that made all things. And for me, that gets stirred up when I'm outside. That, that helps me a lot. I grabbed a picture here of some people out stargazing. Um, there's a, a, a Switchfoot song that talks about that. You know, when I look at my stars, I feel like myself. I know, it's like I know who I am when I see how big God is in the world that he's made. Um, for me, that's, that's a rhythm in my life that's really helpful in recharging me. I would say it's probably good for you to know uh, what those rhythms are. It, it's probably different in different people's lives, right? There's like different kind of contact points for you, areas of your life where you're just really encouraged in the Lord. Um, maybe there are specific events in your past where you clearly saw who God was and what he wanted to do in your life. He, he spoke through maybe you know, some event you went through or some scripture time that you had of just really clearly seeing the Lord in the scriptures in a new way. I would say go back to those things and, and rekindle that and try to find ways to stir that up in your own life, to, to re-recognize that God is the great king and to remind yourself of your place, that God is king and that you serve him. The specifics of what he tells us to do here are, one, to see ourselves as a sheep, and two, to bow down before God. So let me start with just the concrete. The, the concrete uh, command here is worship, bow down. Y'all know worship, kind of the English, the, the idea is to ascribe worth to something. That's kind of where the word comes from. So you're saying you are great. And literally the word, both in Greek and Hebrew, is usually either bow or serve. Those are the two most common words used for worship. Here he gives us literally bow down, right? It's the idea of just physically kind of lowering yourself. This is a greeting that people use in other cultures. We don't usually use this in our, in our culture, but you see this in other cultures, right, where someone might lower themselves to say, I honor you. You're great, right? And so that's a physical posture where we can express that. And so what this looks like in our culture usually is just a bowing of a head maybe in prayer. That's kind of a common prayer posture for those of us uh, in the West in this time in history, right? There's different ways that these things get worked out. Um, you might fold your hands. You might close your eyes, right? There's not a verse that says you must close your eyes when you pray. I don't know if y'all knew that, right? Um, kids always like to fight about that at the table. But these are just ways that we express this kind of bowing. You might kneel at your bedside to pray. You might lay prostrate on the floor. These are ways to show with your body that you believe that God is the great king. I would encourage you to find physical ways to express that posture to God. It's important. The scripture commands us to physically express that God is king and that you know your place. And you are humbling yourself before him. And then there's also kind of a heart posture, right? So there's physical posture, which can help us lead our hearts. And there's heart posture. It says, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So God is like a, sh a shepherd and we're like sheep. So we're like dumb, dirty animals 
that would walk off a cliff if there wasn't a shepherd to keep us from doing that? Do you have that kind of mental and emotional acknowledgement before God? Is your heart willing to bow to God in that way? God, I'm a, I'm a dirty animal, and I need you to take care of me, right? Some of us, we don't want to go there, but that's where the scriptures go. God, you are the human that can think and reason, and I'm just a dumb animal that needs to be led. And so what are ways that you can express that heart posture before God? And I, I'm not talking about like a worm theology where you're just constantly saying that you're terrible. I mean, here in the picture, you're saying, he's a shepherd that, that cares for me. You, you are a dirty sheep, but he, he'll lay down his life for you, right? He, he takes care of you. He, he will clean you and guide you and feed you and love you. So what are some ways that you can do that? I, I think one of the ways that we like to encourage a lot is to be a person of the scriptures. Because as you study this book, you're saying, God knows what is true, and I don't really know what is true. You know, some people are saying we're, we're moving into a post-truth world. Well, I, I have to say that's been happening for thousands of years, right? I mean, it's just these cycles we go through. You, you have to choose in your life, will you bow your heart before God and say, okay, God, I don't have it figured out. I, I need you to direct me. Will you learn the scriptures? Will you study the scriptures? Will you seek his guidance and his wisdom? This is one of the great habits in which you can do that. Submitting yourself before the Lord, telling him that he is the king and you need him to guide you. Another way is kind of what we already talked about, gathering in corporate worship, just making that a, a rhythm of your life, saying, I Man, life is crazy. I don't have time for this, but I'm going to come together with the people of God because they need me to honk at them, right? They need me to encourage them. Say, yeah, God really is good. It doesn't feel like it this week, right? James says in James 1, we should consider trials an opportunity for joy. And I believe the way to unpack that as you look at these texts and other texts is that when when trials and, and bad things come into our life, in a sense, that's stripping away through circumstances these other false gods that we might be trusting in. And so it's an opportunity for, for us to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not trusting in everything going my way. I'm not trusting in health anymore. So that's been ripped away from me. I'm not trusting in all the relationships being peaceful and cool. That's being ripped away. I'm not trusting in my job working out perfectly. Trials are an opportunity for those things to be kind of ripped away, and it's painful, but it's an opportunity for us to put our joy in God, to trust in Him, to, to know our place as, as dependent knowing that he's good, despite how we feel. Well, the last thing I want us to see is that joy is heart change. Joy is a very dramatic thing in our life. You can't really know joy apart from a new heart, um, heart surgery, you might say. I grabbed a picture here of someone going under the knife. Uh, my father-in-law had heart surgery several years ago. I know some of you have had it as well. It's very dramatic. Nobody wants to be cut open, right? And nobody wants to go through that. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes your heart literally gets hard, right? This most common expression of heart disease is a, is a hardening of the arteries um, and then needing to open up some new passageways there. It's interesting in Ezekiel 36, it says that what God does spiritually for us is he takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. So he takes out this hard heart and he gives us a tender heart. The way Jesus talked about it with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is that you must be born again. Your just natural life, your natural heart, your natural desires, your natural inclinations are not going to save you. You need God to give you a new birth, a new heart, a new life. So here's how he says it here in Psalm 95. It starts like the second half of verse 7. It's In most of your Bibles, it should be marked out today. Today. Today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, which was the time when the Israelites rebelled against God. So on that day, Massa, Meribah, verse 9, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So he's saying here that if you harden your heart, you're going to face the wrath of God and you will not enter into his rest. We know the story specifically, these people had seen God do miracles to save them and then said, God, you're not worth it. Now, we might say, man, I could believe in all this Jesus stuff if I just saw some miracles. What the Bible shows us, though, is that people see God do amazing things and still reject him. So I would say that's just one more excuse that we use. Jesus makes this clear when he's telling the story about the the rich man and Lazarus when they die. And the rich man's like, hey, if you could, if a prophet could just go. And Jesus is like, man, they heard Moses. Even if a guy rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe him. And, And that's what we believe has happened, right? Jesus rose from the dead. So here he's saying, don't harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, don't, don't harden your hearts. What does that mean? Um, we see this phrase used in the story about Pharaoh and the Exodus. Have you all heard that story before about how God saved the people out of um, Egypt? And Pharaoh was this mean king that didn't want to let him go. And it keeps saying that Pharaoh was hardening his heart, right? So the king of Egypt is hardening his heart. But it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is that okay, right? Like that seems, doesn't that seem like God is overstepping his bounds a little bit by doing that? Um, I think when you look at the text and when you look at what hardening of heart means, the hardening of a heart really means the strengthening of a heart. And so in a sense, we've got this heart that wants to save ourselves, that wants to be our own God, that wants to do our own thing. And God sometimes allows us to be strong, right? What I would say is when, when we see that with Pharaoh, God is saying, okay, Pharaoh, all right, do your own thing. You, you want to save yourself? save yourself. And so we, we need to make sure we're not strengthening our heart before God and like bowing up to him saying, I'm, I'm strong. I can do this, right? The point earlier was we need to, to know our place. Part of that is saying, I need to submit to you and I need you to give me a new heart because I can't save myself. So don't dig down deeper and strengthen your own heart against God thinking that you can save yourself, but Submit to him and ask him to help you. This looks like repentance, right? This looks like turning and saying, God, I know, I know I've blown it. I need you to save me. I need you to turn this life around. First John 1 talks about that there are basically two categories of people. There are people who lie and say they don't have sin. And then there are people that confess it and God forgives them. It's really that simple. And I would say for those of you that lie and say you don't have sin, there's kind of two ways that we do this. One way is, is common in our culture to just say sin doesn't exist, and it's an outmoded concept, right? You're basically making yourself king of the universe, so nothing that you don't approve or disapprove can exist in your universe. You are king. There's no such thing as sin or failing a God who is in charge. That's, that's one way to go. Another way to go, though, is really religious people. Really religious people lie about their sin a lot by saying, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. And God loves me because I'm better than that, Right? We, why'd you say that? First John would say, that's lying. That's lying and saying you don't have sin. We all, we all have sin. Whether you believe in sin or not, we all have sin and we need Jesus to forgive us of our sin. 
So 1 John promises that if, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I would encourage you to, to have that exchange with the Lord, to have that heart change, to confess, I, I need you to take my stony heart, I need you to give me a heart of flesh. I need to take my self-centered heart, and I need you to give me a you heart, a new heart that loves you, and ask him to make that change. For some of us, it's a long progress, right? God's just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, showing you more and more deeply your need of him. For others of us, it is a crying on the bathroom floor, you know, utter brokenness, hitting the bottom of the barrel, life change. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but I would say you need to give yourself over to him. You need to surrender to him. He needs to give you a new heart. It's interesting, the author to Hebrews, which is a New Testament letter, uh, written to Hebrew to Old Testament people, but a New Testament letter written to the um, Hebrew or Jewish people says that in this psalm, in Psalm 95, it's clarifying that this is not just about the physical rest of entering into the promised land. It's not just about that rest. The, the rest that you need is a resting from your works, right? So if you're an irreligious person, your work is to make yourself whole, to kind of stuff enough fun and pleasure into your life so that you feel complete and you feel like you found yourself, right? Or for uh, religious people, maybe you're just working to impress God and to show him how good you are. But either way, you haven't found rest yet. Only in the gospel will you find real rest, that you can rest from your work. So he's saying, you know, this Old Testament, making it into the promised land, that was just a picture. That was a picture of true rest. That was a picture of, of resting from your works and knowing that God has taken care of you, that God has saved you, that he took all of your sins on the cross and that he died. And those sins died with Jesus, but he rose to new life, giving you life. So you're hidden in Christ so that God in Christ delights in you. He loves you. And so that's, that's real reason to rejoice. As we wrap up, I wanted to go back again to that um, that quote from C.S. Lewis I read at the beginning from his book on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So I want to challenge you if you believe mentally that Jesus is praiseworthy. The question is, do you praise him? Do you say that out loud, that he is good? Because Scripture is saying, there's this call to joy that you will actually find joy in that praise. You'll actually find enjoyment in saying, yeah, he is, he is good. That'll deepen your enjoyment of him. John Piper took this concept and kind of wed it to what we see in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so there's a little clue there. The Westminster Confession says it's just one chief end, right? One chief end, but it gives you two, two things, to glorify God, which means to make him weighty, to say God is great, and to enjoy him. And Piper says, really, that should be said, glorify God by enjoying him. And Piper's just riffing off what Lewis is saying here, right? But that's actually how you praise and enjoy and glorify him. All those things are all wrapped up in one place. And so if you want to glorify God, if you want to honor God in your life, the way to honor God is to have joy in him. And for some of you, you're not feeling it. And so I, I just want to end with Zephaniah 3.17. This one helps me. Maybe it'll help you. 
The reason that we have joy in God is because God first had joy in us. And in Zephaniah three seventeen, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So you may not have had people in your life that, that delighted in you like that. Scriptures say that the God of the universe delights in you right now. That he exults over you. That he's making noise of you. That he is rejoicing over you with loud singing. That he is a mighty warrior. He's capable of saving you. And he loves you. And he's intimately acquainted with your life. He's with you. He's among you. He's holding you. He's rejoicing over you with loud singing. We glorify God by enjoying him, but we enjoy God by knowing that he enjoys us. He finds his joy in you. He sent his son for you. He's come after you. You are his delight. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you came after us. You didn't just leave us making mud pies. You came to save us. Thank you for the delight that you have in us. We pray that that would move us. It would melt our hearts and change our hearts so that we would delight in you, that we would rejoice in you. Help us, Lord, on these days when, when we're not feeling it. Help us to express it outwardly. We thank you for the joy that you give us, and we pray in Jesus' name.